0: Welcome to the crazy wisdom podcast. This podcast is for you. If you have an insane drive to find the truth of things, it's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcasts. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is John Lee. I, he is an early stage investor in deep tech, focusing on companies across frontier, enterprise software, cybersecurity, AI slash ML, and automation. So welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Stuart. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, so what has been, what, 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 how would you explain what deep tech
1: is? Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess there are kind of like two ways to build companies in San Francisco or in, in Silicon Valley or, or startups in general, you know, I think one, one form is you kind of assemble existing technologies and you build a product really quickly and you're kind of expected to get traction on it uh, quite immediately. Um, and a lot of your value is based on the traction that you develop, Um, you know, deep tech, on the other hand, you know, the capital structure is is somewhat more akin to something like biotech, where you have a much longer incubation period. And the theory behind that is that you can develop technologies that give you pretty substantial advantages um, to be able to accrue value much more significantly in, in the downstream. And so I kind of categorize everything that requires a long bake-off time um, as, as sort of deep tech um there are a lot of intricacies within those two things where i think there's a lot of innovation to be had but i would say most classically that's that's kind of the description or practical reality of what a deep tech company is
0: and from my understanding essentially we have been in sort of a wasteland for deep tech in the last 20 years uh, it seems like there's been just software like you know software innovation is the only innovation that has existed since at least 2006 maybe even earlier is that an accurate statement like what what from you have there been like as a as you as an individual consumer not necessarily an investor have there been any sort of major innovations in the technology world that have really really affected your life outside of software
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point because, um, you know, I would say that in some ways, like from a funding perspective, we've actually, I would say, been generally in a pretty substantial renaissance um, in deep tech over the last 10, 15 years. Um, but in terms of like the real lives of consumers, um, I I would say there has been that much penetration of deep tech. You know, I think that we're just starting to see people use autonomous cars for taxis in San Francisco. Um, that is a that is kind of a, a, you know, that was a big effort around deep tech going back the last 10 years. We're starting to see lots of robots in warehouses. And so I, you know, in some ways, like, I would say, like, there's been a lot of infrastructure built out and a lot of technologies innovated in the last 15 years. We're probably just starting to see the deployment of things into real life. Um, whether that continues or doesn't continue, I'm not quite sure what will happen because I, I think a lot of the deep tech renaissance um, over the last 15 years was driven by extremely low interest rate environment where capital could be deployed in these projects um, with a lot more ambition. That that has effectively evaporated in the last two years. And so I'm not quite sure what will happen going forward from this point on.
0: That's really interesting because usually I come at at the interest rate perspective from sort of from a book I read, which is a great book uh, called The um, Price of Time uh, by Chancellor uh, and an excellent book that goes into kind of the negative effects of low interest rates. But what you just said is kind of puts an interesting spin on that, which is that there was a whole bunch of money, cheap money available that just got dried up um that may have been sort of really substantial for trying to make really crazy bets um and and so do you think that that's accurate that a lot of that money was actually put to good use and that that it started what we might be seeing now is sort of uh actually benefited from those low interest rates
1: yeah yeah i mean i i think that there were types of companies that were funded that probably would not get funded in a more capital strict environment i would say a lot of those probably have not ended up as good investments and probably aren't great investments, but for society at large, they're probably highly beneficial for Mm -hmm. the investors of those companies. I don't think those are great investments. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think a lot of the autonomous driving companies have turned out to be not so great investments. Not many have really exited with very high IRR. IRR. Um, You know, I think companies like SpaceX though are, are companies that probably would be somewhat difficult to start, today and get funded, um, especially if you're not an entrepreneur like Elon, um, You know, a lot, a lot of those space companies, they're still seeing some funding, but I think the need to generate revenue in the near term um, is just much, much greater. Um, and, and the onus to, to, to generate revenue in the near term is much greater. I do think, though, that there are kind of interesting hybrid models. And in, in some ways, scarcity drives innovation, where honestly, around deep tech that hasn't been that much business model innovation, like mm-hmm. in, in some ways, it's almost like crazy simplistic and crazy, <laughs> crazy immature. where like everyone just assumes once you develop a technology, you'll be able to sell it. But there's like very little uh, creativity around how to go about selling how to actually build businesses around deep tech. And, you know, that translation piece is actually something that I've been really focused on, mm-hmm. um, kind of in my career, I started my career as more of a classical deep tech investors starting at Lux Capital um, and then and then helping build a firm called Osage University Partners that take technologies directly out of scientific and academic research labs. And, um, you know, my issue uh in in this time was a lot of the go-to-market models were just so uncreative. Um and and they weren't actually businesses. Um and so, you know, in some ways, I actually think with the scarcity of capital, it actually forces much more creative business models, um, which I think is probably better for the space longer term because eventually you need investors to be able to make money for um, there to be continued investment in the space. And it, and I, I don't know if that's really happened to date.
0: Uh, it's so interesting, so many different ways we could go. Um scarcity is a really interesting concept particularly for business model innovation uh have you seen any uh kind of interesting new business models uh, out of this now period of of scarcity that we're in in terms of uh you know like interesting ways to apply these new technologies and I guess that's an intro into like can you share some of the interesting technologies you may have seen uh, if you can speak public publicly about them
1: yeah definitely um you know, there, there are probably like two examples in our portfolio that I really love. Um, and maybe I'll start with one that's that's much more on the deep science, deep tech space. You know, there's a company of course called Rarebase and they target um, finding cures for rare disease. And there's a lot of systemic issues why it doesn't make sense for traditional pharma to invest in drug development and rare disease um, just because the population sizes are so small. But if you count up all the people that have rare diseases, In aggregate, it's a massive population. It's close to, it's over 10% of the US population that has some form of rare disease or another, and they don't have cures, which is kind of mind boggling. And so, what Rarebase does is they are very much a deep tech company in that their platform for finding drugs is pretty experimental, pretty out there. But what they'll do is they'll characterize certain cell types, sometimes taking patient cells they'll create stem cells out of them. um, So they'll make them pluripotent. And then they'll um, force them to turn into the cell of interest. So if it's a uh, brain-based rare disease, they'll turn it into neurons. Hmm. And then they'll use CRISPR to knock out all the genes to figure out precisely where your rare disease comes from and then target that site with only drugs that have clinical data on them. So either drugs that have been approved by the FDA. So there's about... 7,000 drugs that have been approved by the FDA, they'll use those, or they'll use drugs that have failed in the clinic, but have interesting and already available toxicology data, toxicity data, or um, some efficacy data on it and see what drugs work. And so what they end up getting is they get drugs that have tons of data on them, um, many of which seem to actually work for a lot of these diseases. And since they're single point mutation diseases, you understand the mechanism of action of these diseases really well so that you can be quite certain that if you see positive data on it, the data is actually quite clear. Um, that business model is actually to sell or license out those IP assets when they're in stage. They never intend to be a clinical drug development company, but it's a true platform where they can generate revenue. They they can be, they're they're actually close to cash flow positive as a company. Um and it's it's a really novel business idea. This idea of how do you build a platform biotech company that's extremely cash efficient, but has the upside of a normal biotech company. Um, and so, you know, that's one I'm really proud of because it's really hard technology, but they're doing it in such a way that is highly cash efficient and actually finds cures for people that don't have them. And you know, the the beauty of the business there is actually the business model creativity. It's something that. Is quite unique mm. um the second example of a company that we you know we consider a deep tech company is um one of our portfolio this this is still sort of stealth but it's a portfolio company of ours called count and the whole idea behind Count is can we make accounting firms much more efficient and the way that we're doing that is we've recruited and we've brought in as co-founders some amazing machine learning scientists ai scientists and we go and acquire existing and running accounting firms and what we do is we use things like large language models um, lots of ai techniques existing off-the-shelf tools and we build dozens of widgets every single quarter and we throw them against the wall to see which ones actually have a real impact on the gross unit economics of an accounting firm and see which ones can actually drive margin improvement. Operating, operating efficiency. Um, and this is real deep technology. This is technology that is really difficult to build. Sometimes people are training their own foundational models, um, but we're effectively running uh, an AI research lab within an existing operating company. And, um, you know, we're kind of pushing the boundaries of what's possible in terms of unit economics and margins in accounting business. Once we have that solved, we're gonna go and roll up lots of other accounting businesses and scale this thing. Um, and so, you know, that that's an example of like building a deep tech company in flight while generating economics, while building a business um, and, and experimenting with a go to market um, and business model in an extremely risk mitigated way. And, you know, I think that's really the important thing is companies to this point have not needed to risk mitigate because capital has been so freely available. Um, now you need to be able to risk mitigate with actual cash flow, revenue and traction.
0: So interesting. Uh, I want to go back to that. the, uh, the uh, uh, let me see if I can find the name, um, the rare base. Uh, and w- they're, you said that they're characterizing cells, they're taking the stem cells, and then they're forcing them into whatever part of the brain or what a, whatever part of the body uh, that disease rests in. Uh, and, and then they're testing to see if these new drugs work, is that like all in vitro or, uh, like, is it all in the lab or is it, or, uh, well, I probably just answered my question there. Cause it's like, if they were actually to take out testing, then they would become, uh, uh, have to go through the FDA in order to start those tests basically. Right.
1: Yeah. They take this all out and they'll, they'll do it, um, in dish. Um, you know, what's interesting about it is, um, you know, they've actually in their scans, not only have they run FDA approved drugs, they've also run like over the counter compounds. So like plants, things like, you know, like cough medicine or, you know, just random things that in in, like, even like supplements and like for a handful of disorders, they've actually found that like over the counter medicine is extremely efficient and, and extreme and, 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 seems to work for these things. and, um, you know, once they collect a little bit more data, they they intend to publish these things and make these things open source. And so, you know, the the, the beauty of that model is it, it truly is open science. It's the idea is to find cures. You know, th- there's no way we can commercialize something that doesn't have patents and it's freely available. And so why not make those things uh, available for free? Um, and, you know, the the company can effectively find cures simultaneously for close to 4,000 rare diseases at the the same time, which is amazing. And so, you know, there are rare diseases that they'll be able to find cures for that they're not even thinking about, um, just happenstance, they'll find something. Very cool. That's very interesting.
0: And so this seems to set the stage for a question we were talking about earlier before we started to record, which is how important is geography right now, either as an investor or as a founder, how much of it is centered in San Francisco, particularly in relationship to this deep tech renaissance that we've been discussing? Is that centered in San Francisco or is it a
1: worldwide phenomenon? It's definitely not a worldwide phenomenon. And um, I, you know, it's, there's something so special about the United States that allows us to be much more risk-taking and forward um, around innovations around deep technology. You know, there are probably significant clusters to it. The historical clusters have certainly been San Francisco and Boston. Um, you know, I would say that San Francisco remains an epicenter of a lot of this stuff because it really does matter um being able to have people around you that can um can really be somewhat collective intelligence to, you know, where you can brainstorm and and talk about things. Um, you know, it, it it's kind of funny, like in some ways. Like I see these large language models and foundational models as collections of human intelligence because they're largely trained on internet content that humans have created. And so it's, it's really just like the statistical system of finding human concepts that are near each other and, and producing them. And that's kind of the aha, very interesting creative moment that comes out of it. In some ways, you know, that, that human network is present in a much more specialized and, 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 and skillful sending in San Francisco where you have lots of really amazing people in deep tech in really interesting fields like everything from people that are working on new molecules or drugs to people that are working on interesting things around climate change or fusion or ai machine learning which is broadly applicable to almost every single deep science out there and so um, you know it's 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 still a space where you get a confluence of people that you just don't find in a lot of other Uh, Cities across America, and so you know it's it's still very special. So uh,
0: it's a very interesting kind of subject we're we're on right now, which is we've got these machine learning algorithms that essentially take concepts and relate how how close they are to them on a spectrum, and say like a cat a cat is closer to a dog than it is to a human, and kind of as very oversimplification of what they're doing. But but you know they're they're taking these concepts and creating kind of intelligence, uh, artificial intelligence based on on purely linguistic reasoning and such. Um and and then we've also been talking about how essentially inside of San Francisco, inside of these clusters, you have people in exact geographic uh localities that essentially allow for some sort of um mind meld to happen. Uh and so the idea is that basically there's this been this huge push towards remote work, which I've taken advantage of. I love it. i I'm I'm a huge proponent but I do recognize that also being in that same physical location, there's something special that happens. Um, and to me, that's something special that happens, it's almost useless to talk about it in terms of words, because like there's something there that may not be able to be represented by words uh, uh, in terms of what happens when you get people into those same physical locations. What do you think? Is that um, can we can we actually precisely nail down what exactly happens when you're right next to somebody? and what that mind belt looks like?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny, like just uh, keeping the analogy of with these large language models, you know, I kind of, or actually neuroscience as well, you know, I considered emergent properties, right? So like when you have these large language models, the most beautiful thing about them is that they seem to have skills that emerge as networks get larger that nobody could have predicted prior, Um, that's because a lot of crosstalk between these different nodes seems to create capabilities and 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 skills that that weren't um in intentfully designed for and in some ways like that's exactly how the human brain works as well we have emergent properties from different functions in our brain that that come out um that uh th- that like form these like skills and, and abilities that we, we cannot have thought for um, you know, for example, like our ability to anthropomorphize animals um, is like a really interesting crosstalk between the social part of our brain and like the biological data part of our brain of like, you know, what the world means um, Crosstalking to say, you know, you should treat these animals almost like humans and befriend them, and then they'll help you hunt. <laughs> um, and in the same way, like in San Francisco, like you, you have, like I consider the emergent properties... Are like effectively innovations it's like you know someone um from say like the neuroscience world talking to a philosopher um that specialized like in heidegger uh, talking to uh uh like a machine learning person and then people thinking oh my god like um uh like a fantastic way to view like ai alignment is like Reactivity and like and like social truth, like based on Heidegger, like you know things like that. Like those, those are innovations that come from crosstalk between uh, different kind of skill sets or intelligent beings. Mm. And it goes back to what you were saying about business model
0: innovation as well, because we got deep tech, but that business model is a cross disciplinary thing of of like, okay, well we've got this technology, we've got you know like we've got the image of the nerd working in the basement, kind of building this thing, and then once they build it, immediately money, profit, step two, profit. Uh, But in reality, it turns out you need to actually put another step in there, which is to innovate on the actual business model that is opened up by this sort of thing. And so what I'm getting from this conversation is that San Francisco, the real key to San Francisco's success from 1990s until present has been its ability to do cross disciplinary um, kind of emergent sharing between minds that might not have kind of and but how much of that is the culture of San Francisco how much of that is the uni- the universities that surround the, the how much of it is like Stanford the fact that like the way that Stanford was a, as a university is kind of different than its other elite universities in 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 Stanford w- what's your take on that
1: you know it's all of it right it's like one one the bay area still is um a major destination for extremely intelligent people um, and it's also the home for industries that are pretty diverse. You know, it's, it's the home for, um, um lots of finance, like lots of private equity and venture capital firms, it's the home for, um, you know, obviously all the tech firms out here, it's the home for lots of biopharma pharma, um, and, and just like a ton of different industries that kind of force people that are at the top of their game, um, all to converge on the city. And, um, you know, you, there's also a cultural element to San Francisco, which is very different than the East Coast, where, you know, we're, a, you know, there's kind of a libertarian tint to the city. So a bit more anti-regulation or avoidance of regulation. Mm-hmm. The city is more open and progressive in its thoughts. You know, I think the psychedelics revolution starting in San Francisco has had a major impact on the way that people think and, and their views about the world um, and there's also less hierarchy here, uh, uh, and and much more of a merit a, a meritocracy. And so, you know, I think all those things are, um, come together to bring lots of really interesting people together from lots of different spaces. And and that's what you really need. You need, you need diversity in 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 talent and accomplishments um, to be able to generate the diversity and innovations in lots of other fields. You know, that company RareBase, the the founders had very different backgrounds. You know, one, one came from, you know, being a chief scientific officer of large pharma, you know, pioneering functional genomic expression models. Another was a former architect slash tech entrepreneur on the consumer side. Another, you know, had run services, clinical businesses on the on the CRO side. And so, you know, the, those three people normally would never come under the same roof, but, um, you know, they came together very focused on, you know, solving a, a problem around rare diseases where incentives weren't in aligned before. And you know, I I think like that that kind of thing, it's very it's it's very difficult to try to recreate that in say for like, I don't know, like South Dakota or something like that.
0: Yeah. Uh well, okay. So there's a couple of different questions. Uh there's one just like a personal interest. How did those three people meet? Uh like is there some sort of chance occurrence or did they work together previously? How did they actually do you know how they the origin story of how they all met?
1: yeah I'm not actually quite sure how they all met, but um you know one of the founders he himself had a rare disease, and mm-hmm. he helped find his own cure um, using okay. um, kind of ai techniques and 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 he you know he found that a breast cancer drug um, worked for his brain tumor, um, right. and that was kind of the initial. Idea, And then, you know, they, they, f- they found that there are a lot of academic clinics where individual physicians are repurposing drugs yeah. um, on, a, on a one-off basis with, with patients. And they seem to find cures a lot of times because in reality, you know, drugs cure symptoms. They don't, they don't cure often root causes. And so, you know, oftentimes symptoms are shared across lots of different indications and diseases. And so it would make sense that, you know, like if you're carrying symptoms, you could probably cure the symptoms of lots of diseases out there.
0: Hmm. Okay, a very interesting. Um, there was another question that we could have gone down, but I've now unfortunately forgot what that is. Uh, but we do have this question of AI and emergent capabilities and specialization. Uh, my assumption is that specialization, as we know it, which has been such a foundational kind of, you know, like we the whole system we have set up right now, is people go to college, specialize in something. Once they specialize in something, they go further into that specialty, uh, and goes it just keeps on going further and further and further. And that's also within academia of, of you you study this highly highly niche thing, um, so that you can kind of create this 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 thing that's your own, and you you create a PhD on it, and you defend your thesis, and it's highly highly specific. Uh, and uh, do you think that that's going to go away with AI? And that these specializations are essentially like uh, on their their kind of unless it's super super impactful uh, and maybe outside the realm of what AI can can do. Uh, do you, do you think the generalist is now going to have their time in the, sh- in the in the sun? That's an interesting point.
1: Um, like in some ways, like I actually think. That these AI models that are really popular today, like large language models and like ChatGPT and GPT four, they actually elucidate the the challenges and and shortcomings of being generalist only. Um, and like you know, in in some ways, like I think like our society and culture, at least at the elite level, have become victim to kind of keeping their options open for too long, and and have had somewhat arrested development on um, you know, pushing off specialization, you know, Mm -hmm. there are hordes of extremely intelligent and capable people that go into investment banking or consulting, which, you know, are not specialties there. They certainly teach you a lot of skills. Um, but a lot of those people are not, um, kind of deep in something learning how to, how to build a true skill because I feel like a lot of people don't want to put all their eggs in one basket, Mm -hmm. which is fair. Um, I I do think like their apprentice model and being able to specialize early is actually pretty helpful. And, you know, the only analogy I have for that is, you know, in Silicon Valley, we see a lot of companies that get started and they say they're a platform um, almost on day one. And I just find that so odd because, um, you know, (laughs) you're basically uh, a master of none and really not good at anything but you call yourself a platform um you know reality platform is some something that's good at a lot of different things and so in in some ways um people are premature and calling themselves a platform the only times i've seen platforms actually develop are are when companies and startups focus on doing something um very small really really well and then they get to a scale and and financial um strength and and sustainability that they can then expand their product offerings to become a platform. And, but even then they need to be able to execute on, on a lot of new businesses in, in order for them to actually become a platform. Um, and I I kind of see that the same as people as well. Like, um, you know, you, you get this like kind of weird phenomenon where you have people that are a year out of undergrad that are consultants that think that they have the capacity and experience to, to, to advise very large companies or advise any companies, and I find that bizarre because they really don't have any experience whatsoever. They're just um, smart, and so they're just smart. Yeah, and it, it, it's in some ways it's the exact same thing for GPT four. It's very smart in its ability to like pull facts and things from lots of different domains. But if you specialize it to actually get work done, it, it becomes really stupid really quickly, and then you start to realize that it, it just doesn't work all that well for a lot of things. It's great it's great at pulling kind of loose threads together and having really fuzzy answers, but Mm -hmm. it's not that great at actually accomplishing anything.
0: So that's really interesting because that changes my question now from, I think you're right, that that the more you bring in ChatGPT into a specific specialty, uh, the more it kind of loses its value, particularly when it doesn't have access to all of the problem set that you're working on. You know, one of the main problems right now is how do you, we've got a company you know, I, I work at Invisible and we've got this 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 whole knowledge base, and it's impossible to get that context inside something like Chat GPT at the current moment to then have it give me good answers. And and so that's part of the thing about missing a specialty is that it can't absorb all the context. So me as the specialist on invisible have to narrow down my specific context and then get it inside of the chat GPT in order to get it. Um, and so the question is now becoming when. Do you think that AI will eventually get to specialty level um, uh, competence uh, and, and how far away do you think we are?
1: I, I do think it will, but I think we're quite far away. Um, and I think the architecture of the current models, um, I, I don't know if we can quite get there. You know, if you think about it, you know, there's, there's, there's this weird... Example of Xerox copy machines, mm-hmm. um, where, like, you know, when you use a Xerox copy machine, you assume it's going to be completely accurate, perfect facsimile. But um, there's a bunch of documented cases where Xerox copy machines mess up some numbers. It'll re- replace sixes with eights or something like that. And the reason that happens is Xerox, um, how the copy machine works, is it takes a photo of what needs to copy. Um, it creates a digital format for that photo and then it reprints that. But, you know, when it changes, Mm. you know, from like a CMOS lens sensor to like a digital uh, file, um, it does lossy compression because, you know, that's the only way that you can convert um, um, into a digital image. And in that lossy compression, you lose a lot of information. And then when you reproduce it, you reproduce lost information Mm. in some ways. Um, there's a New Yorker article on this. They call GPT uh, a lossy compression or JPEG of the internet, which is exactly what it is. It's just you know all this information that has been compressed into a CSV um, um, or into into you know a model, and then yeah. all the weights are you know in a CSV and and then reproduced every single time. And so like the, you know what however sophisticated and how, however amount of data there is, there's always going to be some form of lossy compression. Mm -hmm. Um, to be able to regurgitate it in interesting ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, because it's statistically based and there's no world knowledge in that, I have some doubts whether the current architecture will actually get you to like, highly specialized information within an AGI system. But let's put that aside because that's more of like a philosophical discussion, more technical discussion. And there's lots of people that can opine on that that are way more qualified than I am. On the current models and their ability to scale, I also have some concerns on whether we'll be able to get there you know OpenAI as public has publicly said you know they want to get to a place where they i think want like, have like a 100 trillion parameters and that will that, that they think that's the tipping point to get to AGI mm-hmm. you know the reality is the amount of data that you need for 100 trillion parameters are hundreds mm-hmm. and hundreds of um petabytes of data or thousands yeah. of petabytes of data um, yeah. and you know um Common crawl um is something like 20 petabytes of data or something like that and we've effectively exhausted that for gpt4 um and then outside of that the uh, data becomes a lot lower quality and so the amount of data that you need probably expands pretty substantially and so no one really knows uh, how much data we'll need and how it scales um and um the simple fact is we, we've kind of run out of extremely high uh, quality data and, and we have much lower quality data and so regardless of if you have the capital to pay for the compute and the training, um, I don't know if there's enough high quality data out there um, to be able to get these large language models to a place where like AGI actually exists. And so, you know, I, I, I you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the, in, the, in the startup ecosystem of like, whether all these AGI talks are really just ways that like large fan companies and open AI can scare regulators into yeah. Yeah, giving yeah. them regulatory capture. Um, I think that's probably more likely what's going on than act- actually people at OpenAI thinking that AGI is going to happen soon. Um, I don't know. That would be my tinfoil hat theory. Um, because like I, I, I think the math is pretty simple on like how much data is available. And I, I, I just don't believe that they're aware of that as well.
0: Uh, so there's a few questions there. Very interesting. I, I like the way you put it. I would have to. Tend, I would also put on my tin tin foil hat there, and have been putting that tin foil hat on. And I think it's actually probably accurate because anytime you have fear involved, there's often a large marketing component to that fear. Um, but uh, but so data. Have you been following the synthetic? data that they've been training things on. I know that I think Llama is using synthetic data. So like data that the AI itself is producing or is something that I don't understand basically about them actually training it on data that that is being generated. Have you heard of that? Yeah that, do you think that's a way to get over what you just said?
1: Yeah that that seems like a horrible idea to me <laughs> because you're you're effectively using another form of classifier to create data for another classifier. And so I don't, I just don't understand how um, rather than uh, ameliorating problems and, and errors, you actually just don't compound them. And I think there have been a few early papers in the space that have showed like dramatic degradations in per- mm. performance um, training off of synthetic data. You know, it's like, I get, I get concerned about that. Um, and I get why um, some of these foundational model companies are trying that because I think everyone sees the writing on the wall on yeah. oh, um, the amount of data available and uh, you know also like the incremental increase in costs and the human labor involved in, in creating and labeling. Um, yeah, you know, they just see it as kind of uh, enormous, and so like I, I I don't know. I mean, like I, it, I I'm looking forward to seeing more <laughs> progress on that. Hopefully, it works out, but I I doubt it. I mean, it just seems it just seems like a really terrible idea
0: and then so and this is specifically around linguistic data that is like reddit quora google all these different things that the the lm is absorbing and that's one kind of data that we humans really focus on but then let's like maybe and this might go back into that philosophical technical angle but these sort of multimodal like how how can we use like visual visual data to train llms like does that even make sense like Uh, like we use those, those models that have been developed for a cruise to then, uh, the self-driving cars to, to also improve these models, or is that totally outside of the realm of the possibility?
1: Yeah, I, I personally think the multimodal models that are going to come out in the next month or two are, are going to be game changers. They're going to reignite a lot of interest. Um, you know, a lot of people are saying the financial model boom is somewhat dying down but i think once people see some of the capabilities of these models it's going to be mind blowing it's going to be crazy and the reason is you know multimodal data is a lot richer and um you know you you start one of the emerging properties seems seems to be execution and so mm-hmm. a lot of the companies that will work at, focus on analysis like you are going to be able to actually execute things on your desktop um, it's going to be able to book a flight for you um you know I. I've had some conversations with people working on these, and it sounds like, you know, some of them have short and long-term memory and the way that it parses um, and, and figures out what to um, embed into long-term memory, it actually has um, a period in which it will consolidate information in short-term memory embed it into long-term memory, and it will be down for a period of time. And so the emergent property there would be sleep, <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> crazy. Um, and so, you know, I I like I, I'm very excited about them. Um, you know, like there are some demos from one of Google's first multimodal models um, that, you know, it could help book a flight for you and, and suck in your preferences in order to do that. And that stuff is going to be crazy, crazy cool. And I'm, I'm very excited. It's going to have a lot of the issues that we have currently with large language models. It's going to mess up a lot. There's going to be a lot of mistakes. Um, but I actually think like, all the stuff that popped up around just language models um there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff that pops around these multimodal models maybe even more maybe even things that are a lot more capable and so i'm, I'm pretty stoked for them like after multimodal models I, I don't really know where it goes from there because i do think we run into a similar kind of data bottleneck problem but there's probably a little bit more rut. Room to run there, um, which I'm pretty excited about. It's gonna require a lot of labeling though, and labeling is gonna be challenging. Interesting. So we might already be at that long tail where uh the 20% and the
0: Pareto pr- principle, where we've already done 80%, and that next 20% is gonna require a huge, huge amount of labor kind of thing.
1: We we could be. I could be wrong though. Yeah. <laughs> <I
0: hope. laughs> yeah. Uh as we all, as we all can be. So uh so okay so in how, so going back to deep tech and connecting this to deep tech do you see that these llms or other uh models being really helpful for the innovation within deep tech like are any deep tech companies that you're familiar with using M, uh, machine learning in order to improve their ability to do their business
1: oh yeah we, we have an incredible amount of companies that are using transformer models you know i think um one area that isn't all that obvious to the public um, are, are companies that are using this in computational drug discovery. And it's it's had a massive impact on companies' abilities to be able to figure out, generate new compounds that fit into targets to understand targets better, um, and hopefully be able to dramatically improve the results um, as well of, of, of the drugs that they create. You know, we have one portfolio company called Nebita Biosciences, and, you know, they they use these transformers and large language models in a lot of different areas. Mm. They're looking to find active compounds within plant medicines. And, mm. you know, one thing they, they use large language models for is, you know, they analyze 10,000 10, years of ancient text to find every instance, um, every instance that humans somehow use a, a plant as a therapeutic. Um, and, you know, they came out with a bunch of target um, plants to go after, and then they use um, transformers on mass spec to be able to identify the very specific nice. bioactive compounds they, they think are having therapeutic effect. Like those things wouldn't be possible with, without these foundational models or these transformers. Mm. And, um, you know, that that's having a real impact in, in sciences where, you know, honestly science up to up until this point has largely been artisanal, you know, it's been <laughs> bench top. It's been like, you know, it's it's been much more of an art. Um, and, you know, we're turning it into somewhat of an engineering discipline, oh. which is super exciting. Um, it's super exciting. And yeah. so, like, I, I do think it has the potential to accelerate lots of science. Um, and um, I, I, I think like a lot of people's assumptions are science is what generates technology, but I actually think it's the other way around. Technology is what generates good science. Yeah. Um, and, you know, having these tools available is, is going to create a lot of breakthroughs. You know, we've had really substantial declining productivity in science over the last three decades. And, you know, I think AI machine learning is actually driving a really interesting renaissance across lots of different disciplines in, that, in, in those fields because it applies to everything from social sciences, like just understanding how like human behavior is and human psychology, um, you know, you could apply it to nutrition, you could apply it really to any any field in science, which is really exciting. Mm. That's very cool.
0: Uh, I have a, just a personal question uh, in the in terms of those plant medicines uh have you heard of anything in terms of uh isolating what are the main effects from iboga or ibogaine have you heard of either of those plant medicines and, and Yeah, ibogaine
1: um yeah. yeah um they haven't I don't think Invita has done any work on ibogaine specifically but you know there there is kind of one company that um uh, is just getting started um that is going to do some work in ibogaine and hmm. um yeah i mean that's that's really interesting psychographic so, like, compound which has like a very different uh it seems mechanism action mm-hmm. than um like psilocybin and lc and some of those things yeah it's so it's, it's, it's very interesting I, I i'm not an expert in that so i don't know a ton but i i, I hear there's some really interesting work going on there
0: yeah, if you hear of anybody please send them my way cuz uh I am fascinated by that by that substance in particular and how it just like it seems like a magical a drug for interrupting the withdrawal cycle uh for this really really gnarly withdrawal um, from heroin. Uh so it's a very very fascinating one. Um artisanal science. I really love that term. Uh uh turning artisanal <laughs> science into engineered science or or something along, along that that lines. Um so uh what so let's go to deep tech uh what are so i i i found I found out about you know people putting solar panels in space and beaming down the energy we've got drug discovery, we've got um uh, kind of applying machine learning inside of accounting uh any kind of broad buckets for what deep deep tech is really the kind of the themes that you're seeing for new deep tech companies like energy. Um, Any anything like broad bucket categorization of what's going on inside
1: of deep tech? Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say there's been a a number of material science and energy funds that have popped up that have, you know, some impact or philanthropic back to them, but they're quite large pools of capital. Um, And so they've been funding a lot of interesting stuff in energy, energy generation or material science. Um, I think that stuff is fascinating. I mean, I think the stuff in fusion is really interesting. Um, you could argue w- whether it really makes sense for us to be pursuing fusion, whether it's actually a much better source of energy than fission. but you know, I think the research into it is 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 wonderful. um you know, I think the space that I think the two spaces that really um are exciting for me are one around epigenetic reprogramming, which mm. is, um, you know, the ability to um, effectively change the way that our trans- transcriptome um, uh, produces proteins, um, where it could have pretty dramatic impacts on everything from our longevity to lots of different indications. You know, we're just scratching the surface on, on what's possible there. And, you know, that that stuff will have a pretty meaningful impact on humanity. You know the other area that I think is really interesting is um, innovations around um, reproduction. You know, I I think we 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 need to figure out a a better model for um, um, you know IVF. We need to figure out a better model for how we have children. Um, You know, for example, there are some efforts on how do you create um, egg cells from you know, like a blood cell, which I think is Mm -hmm. really interesting. Um, and so like if that were the case, you know, it, you, you would render the, the egg freezing industry. Um, um, you you wouldn't need that anymore. Like you you could just create egg cells from scratch. Um, you know, additionally, like there's a lot of research going on in like artificial wombs, which I think is really interesting. How do you, um, and, and like, how, how do you effectively, Um, give, give couples and families the chance to reproduce much later in life, which is kind of where society has been going. And, you know, there's a small window, which is becoming smaller and smaller, just, Mm -hmm. just given some of the financial challenges uh, in, in, in being able to procreate at an earlier age. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, solving that, I think would have a huge impact of, you know, at least the reproductive rate of Americans, um, which I think is is pretty important. (laughs) Uh, Very important. Uh, and so, last few minutes
0: left. Uh, the the what you said about creating an egg say, cell out of a blood cell was fascinating because uh, essentially w- what that means is that we're we're coming on the age where we can actually find the keys to life in ways that, like, we can take cells and create different cells out of those cells. And imagine that a lot of that has to do with stem cells and the potential inside of stem cells. Um, but that's kind of wild that, uh, I, I, for a few years ago, I got really interested in connective tissue and, and fascia and, and this, this tissue that's, that's, um, somewhat, it's not like really living. It's just structural tissue. Uh, and the, the visualization I got is that the, the, the transcriptome is shooting out proteins, um, that kind of, uh, just create the structure that we is so important. And that also sends a lot of signals. So there's like certain signals that go through fascia. Based on the way you stretch and 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 that fascia, according to a lot of the people, the body workers who study it, who became scientists in order to study it, because the doctors were mostly just kind of um, throwing it out the window, saying this stuff isn't important. It's just uh, inert structural uh, tissues, um, and uh, and so they found out a lot of different stuff. And it's just so wild that that what you're saying is that we can we we're, we we seem to be getting to the the very secrets of how to uh, influence life in ways to create totally different cells out of other cells uh, really the last few minutes. Is there anything interesting you want to add on that, on that subject?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we invested in a company called Colossal that is um, trying to bring the woolly mammoth um, um, de-extinct. <laughs> and um, you know, the way that you do that is you have to be able to create an embryo right from uh, another cell. Uh, and so, you know, it requires, what, what we call gametogenesis, creating gametes um, from other cells. And, you know, the the reason, you know, our hypothesis in investing in that company was, um, you know, just doing it with animals is just much, much faster. And if you could build an interesting business model around it, you're just going to get a lot more innovation than, than having to be able to do it in in humans, which, you know, um, very reasonably have lots of guardrails around it. And you want, you 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 definitely want this guardrails. Um but um, you know, trying to bring back a, a woolly mammoth is a very hairy and audacious goal. And so um if you're able to accomplish it there, then you could transfer a lot of the technology at some point to humans, which which we we think is really interesting. And so all of it comes back to what's what's the right business model for, for deep tech. Because you know if if you're if you're just gonna go out and try to start a company that does this in humans, you, you're gonna hit um a funding wall or you're going to hit um long regulatory approval um you're gonna hit a lot of issues which you know I, there are companies that are trying it like there's, there's a guy named Matt that started coming called Conception Bio which is doing some incredible work um you know I at the same time like it, it, it's it's really tough it's a really tough battle for them right it, it, to be able to get the funding runway in in order to accomplish that mm, super interesting uh, well,
0: thank you so much for coming on the show. And how can p- listeners find out more about you and what you're working on? Anything you want to share with the audience?
1: Yeah, um, reach out to anybody here at, at Jazz Venture Partners. You know, we're we're very focused on investing in companies that are at the convergence of deep technology, deep science, and and creative um translation. And so if you have anything that you think would interest us, um, you know, we we're always uh, our our ears are op- always open. <laughs> Cool. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I, I, I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.